Welcome to another episode of Slice of Pie, where the pie is the psychologically informed environment and the mission is to understand it, whether it's sport, business or any other field. How can we help support performance and well-being in the places that we work, compete or perform? Thanks to those who have been in touch since the Richard Keegan episode. Richard and myself talked about building careers and the potentially less appreciated path of building a wide variety of skills and experiences versus the classic notion of becoming a guru in one area. A couple of questions came in around this that I think are really worth digging into and thanks for those that have sent in these questions. Those are one, does the wide base apply for, let's say, elite athletes, or is this better for those in business or other careers? And then can you create a wider base of skills within a specialist career? And at what point are you focusing your energies in too narrow a field? For me, I've reflected on this. And firstly, I don't think it is as clear cut as saying specialist careers are vulnerable and the varied career is the desirable one. It's more that the varied jungle gym type career is not talked about as much. Therefore, Richard's keynote and authors like Reid Hoffman, who shine a light on it, are doing a valuable job in advocating for a different way to look at careers. Secondly, can you apply this thinking to a very specialist area, for example, elite athletes? This week's podcast is in many ways a natural segue on from the Richard Keegan conversation as we speak to CEO of Switch the Play, Leon Lloyd. After finishing as a professional rugby player, Leon transitioned into helping athletes from a range of different sports work on developing new skills and experiences that not only set them up for their next chapter after sport, but gives them valuable skills that actually improve them as athletes while they are still playing. One thing that is immediately clear in this interview is how passionate Leon is about what he does and how he's developed his own mindset over the years to cope with change, be that selection, injury or career transitions. I found it a genuinely inspiring conversation and I hope you enjoy it as well. So let's get into it with Leon Laurie. Leon, how are we? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. Thanks very much for, for joining us on this sunny Wednesday morning. You, you've been out for a, a bike ride already, haven't you? I have, yes. I, it's, I, for me, I've, I've, been block, I've been blocked out. My time's been blocked out with my studies. Uh, I'm just coming towards the end of my MBA and I had a, a dissertation which was weighing me down and I kept using the, the excuse, well, I can't do any fitness, I can't do any training until I finish this, I need to get this off my desk. Uh, and that um, that was done. I did that last week, so I've got no excuse now. So at 6 a.m. when I used to get up and read uh, enthralling academic journals, I now get up at 6 a.m. and go for a bike ride instead. 6 a.m. Are you are you one of these horrifying individuals that is is up achieving things at 6 a.m. every day? Are you? Absolutely not. That made that now when I, <laughs> I listen back to that what I just said, then it sounds like I am. But no, generally I like to lay in. Just that I have what I am good at doing is chunking down my time and trying to think like, what can I do? What needs to be done? How can I fit it in? And 6am for me, I've got two daughters, a dog, uh, and a wife that keeps me busy. So 6am, nobody else is up at 6am. So that's, that's quality time in my house where I can actually get onto the important things. Love it. 
Well, thanks very much for, for making this one of your, your chunks of time in, in your day. Now, we, we've had this in the diary for a while because we will, as you've just mentioned, we were waiting for your MBA uh, dissertation to finish. And I think you finished that last week. Dare I ask how you're feeling now? You're feeling happy, relieved? I am, I am relieved, to be honest. It's, it's been a long two-year process. And you know, I left school at 16 um, to sign pro in sport. So I'm far from being an academic. But the last four years, four or five years, I've, I did my undergrad degree and I rolled straight into doing this MBA. And I think my attention, not my attention to detail, but my ability to retain information is certainly stretched. It's not what it would have been if I'd have done this 20 years ago. Um, so, yes, I feel relieved. I feel like I've gained some headspace as well, which is much needed um, now that that's sort of finished. Well, I think going back into education at, at any point when you haven't progressed it that far originally, it's even harder. So hats off to you for doing that and I'd love to dig into that a little bit more in a second but but firstly you know I'm a, a rugby badger uh, myself and I, I remember you playing for for Leicester maybe with a was that even as far back as playing with a letter on your back instead of a number very yes good memory good memory yes um, in the good old days of playing with letters what was your letter I played on the wing or in the center so I played with either L M or K yeah so for those that might not be familiar with the letter system or with uh, Leon Lloyd and, and rugby in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, would you mind uh, giving us a quick hitchhike through your, your playing career and then that pivot into what you're doing now? Yeah, of course, yes. Yeah. So I grew up in the inner city Coventry uh, and my dream as a boy was to play football for Coventry City. Um, unfortunately, that I, I, never re- I haven't realised that dream yet. There's still a chance, never say never. Uh, but at the age of 16... I ended up signing professionally uh, rugby for Leicester Tigers, largely because I was a relatively quick runner and I used to get in quite a lot of trouble at school, so I used to get involved in the odd scrap. So my PE teacher thought, a bit of a scrapper and quick at running, you might be good at rugby. So they, they forced me to play rugby, which I, I reluctantly did. When the game wasn't professional then, so it was more, I felt like it was a punishment. When the game turned pro, I think it was 95, 96 time, and I'd signed for Leicester at the time. I lived with Martin Johnson, uh, the former England captain, World Cup winner. And then I suppose that was the start of my journey. It was, it was then I was, I was being paid to do something that I loved doing as a professional athlete at the age of 16, 17 with a, group, a special group of people. We went on to achieve some uh, amazing things together over a, a sort of a 14, 15 year career. I went from, I went from Leicester to, to Gloucester and on my journeys, I was very fortunate to play for England a handful of times. And then I retired I hate saying the word retired because it sounds quite formal, doesn't it? Quite. Uh, mm. as if I retired from sport at the age of 30, which is young, really, if you think about it. Um, but in sporting context, I started at, made my debut at 17. So really, I had, a, I had a lot of miles on the clock. My body was probably ready to retire maybe a year earlier, two years before that. But I managed to dig in and keep going. I'd love to have played longer. And a lot of my very close teammates continued playing. And that was tough to watch them play. Um, but they carried on playing until mid-30s. But I, you know, I suppose that's because they probably started a little bit later than I did. And then I was sort of thrust into the, the real world and having to get a proper job and understanding that a full day is a full day, not just a couple of hours training each day with your mates. And, and that, that, was a, that was a challenge for me, uh, as I say, because I left school at 16, went straight into professional sport. I, hadn't, I didn't see rugby as a job. I saw it as something that I, I did, I enjoyed doing, and I got paid a good salary for doing it. I was able to travel the world and meet great people. So it never really felt like a job, even when it was tough, even when it, 
you've got pre-season or you have those dark moments of, you know, the losses and the cup final defeats and things like that, it was still an amazing environment to be a part of. So I was in search of trying to, to replicate that and found that it's very difficult to do that. So that sort of led me on to write I ended up writing a book, actually. I wrote a book about... Um, this, is, uh, my this is Big Room to Boardroom, is it? It is, yeah, it is. And I, and I say, but before, before I started writing it, the longest thing I'd written was a tweet or a text. <laughs> so it was just, it, was, it, started off as, it started off as, I used to be invited by the RPA, which is the Rugby Players Association, to go and speak to the young up-and-coming academy players about the realities of elite sport. Um, because I was always one of those guys where I got injured at the age of 20, I my first knee operation, and I panicked. I thought, what if I don't recover from this knee injury? What if I if I lose if I lose my speed? What do I have to offer the team? Is that my career gone? So I sort of really, through fear, I, I sort of went and shadowed our CEO at the club. I worked in the ticket office. I worked in the groundsman. I worked in the catering department. Worked in the accounts department. I, I literally did during the off season. I worked in all those areas, much to my teammates' amusement. You know, they're calling me from Ibiza or wherever they were in Mallorca and I was in, in the ticket office working um, because I, I was wanting to understand about business. I wanted to understand about how does the club work? What was my role as a player in that environment? So that if I did have to leave the sport as a player, I still had something to add somewhere else down the line. And yeah, I was going to say that, but, but what happened was when I did retire, I was down at Gloucester, we just had our, our first daughter. The thing that blindsided me was not all the plans I'd put in place because all my teammates thought that you know, I'll be all right. We'll be sat on the back of the bus and they're allowed to be talking. These are guys who have won World Cups. You know, the guys who have been far more successful than I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll be, be talking about what does the next phase look like? And they'd all say, oh, it's all right. I'm going to go and get a job with Lloydie. He's got his fingers in lots of pies. Uh, and, if lots of, and if everyone's saying that, you sort of tend to believe it. You sort of think, oh, yeah, the lads want to come and get a job with me. So I must be doing the right thing. Mm. However, when, I was, when I, it finally happened and the surgeon told me that he couldn't fix me um, a final time. I got blindsided by the fact that for my whole life, I've had so much structure and I hadn't put in place that how to replicate or fill that void of not being with the lads, not having that structure, not knowing where to be, what to wear, what to eat, what to do. All those things you take for granted in elite sport. And I sort of, on my own, because all the lads are obviously still playing and training and getting ready for the match at the weekend. And there was me retired by myself, which, is, which was really tough because... In your mind, when you talk about it, you think, oh, I can't wait till we finish playing because then we can go and play golf and do all the things that we can't do now. <laughs> and the reality is, when you retire, you don't retire en masse. You don't, the whole team doesn't retire. And, and very rarely do you decide uh, the terms on which you retire anyway. So mm. I, was, I was sort of out on, on my own, if you like, living down in Cheltenham. So I was playing for Gloucester with a, you know, with a, with a, a newborn daughter uh, and walking around Cheltenham with my wife. And I, used to, I remember I used to walk around Cheltenham at, and three o'clock on a Saturday, and three o'clock on a Saturday only means one thing to me, and that was game time. That was when my head needed to be in the game, and my whole life that's what it was. So I found myself walking around Cheltenham at three o'clock on a Saturday, and I just wasn't there. You know, I was, I was just I was in a different place, and I really struggled to to snap out of that. And it probably took me about a year, two years actually, to try and snap out of that and think, well, that's gone. Can't go back to that now. What, what's next? Well, hell of a hitchhike. Um, so <laughs> you you you've gone from potentially partnering Dion Dublin up front for Coventry to partnering Austin Healy in the back line. Yeah, very true, very true, yeah. You've, you've lived in what I can only assume is the world's most cramped house with Martin Johnson. 
Um, <laughs> you've gone from one of the most intensely supported clubs in the UK to probably one of the other most intensely supported clubs and going from Leicester to Gloucester. So, and then the, you know, the, the injury, that kind of the fear of you know, what else can I do really driving you into looking outwards. What other players at that time were working in the, the ticket office and shadowing the CEO? Was that something that, that other players were doing or was that very much kind of breaking, breaking the norm? Yeah, absolutely not. There's a, a look around my peers now. At the time, they gave me a load of abuse for it, um, thinking I was, you know, I was mad. And now, on reflection and in, in hindsight, when we talk about it now, they're actually quite jealous that I'd taken that, I'd taken those steps because we we all have the same fears, you know. And I'm, I'm very fortunate. I work in sport now, and I talk to athletes from all different sports. And when you ask them what the fears are, the fear is what am I good at? What am I going to do next? What? Uh, but no one ever talks about it because you don't want to be seem to not be focusing on the here and now so i only found that afterwards so you know 15 years afterwards i finished and the lads were, were were sort of thinking i wish i'd have done that now because uh, I, I sort of wasted those years when I, I just sat around doing nothing but at the time they couldn't forward they couldn't come forward and say that because they'd already spent so much time giving me abuse and banter about it so it, it's fascinating now because I, I look at the, the modern day athlete and certainly if i just use rugby as an example the modern day player now is far more switched on to the to the both the shortness of a the potential shortness of a career and they do look for other opportunities and they do look for things so whereas before I would definitely have been the minority I, I don't think if you look at a squad I don't think 50% of, of a squad would be doing things like that now but I certainly think there'll be more than a handful of people who are are studying are developing their own business are trying to gain work experience and trying to do all those things because I think the world has moved on and, and sport has moved on and there's far more evidence now which supports the need for you know better people make better athletes and having a, having a better pers- uh, perspective on life, not just being so tunnel vision. Tunnel vision. I was I was just I was just going to jump in on that because this uh, this notion of a more distributed athletic identity, as you as you've mentioned, has has got quite a bit more uh, evidence to it than it than we previously would have. I know Re- Rebecca Symes who who's who's based with uh, the England football team talks a lot about athletic identity. She did a podcast, I think, with Don't Tell Me the Score all about this. Is this something that you you talk about quite a lot now in your your role at Switch to Play? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the athlete that's one of the biggest issues. Um I did a lot quite a lot of research on it um around the, the, the major factors that influence a transition out of sport. And athletic identity was was one of the the most problematic, if, if you like. Because if, if I look back and I use myself as an example, even though I know that you know I'm the same as most of the people that I've spoken, ninety percent of the athletes I've spoken to, I never saw myself as Leon Lloyd, the husband, the father, the brother, the trustee, the, the ambassador for a charity. I saw myself as Leon Lloyd, the rugby player. And it, I wasn't Leon Lloyd who also played rugby and did all those other things. I was just Leon Lloyd, the rugby player, and everything else played second fiddle. So I didn't really know. No one really knew what I was good at or, or what I was interested in outside of outside of sport. So that, that's really difficult to try and when you're dealing with your career, uh, your sporting career ending anyway, that comes with lots of stresses. But then if you're still trying to you know, investigate and figure out what it is, what's your purpose, what's your, why you're here, as well as all those other things, it's, it's quite a dangerous and difficult time to try and navigate. So to try and help, you, help yourself, if you can sort of help yourself see the wood for the trees, if you like, and figure that out whilst you're still competing. You're just removing one, one less hurdle for when that time comes because 
as we know, the three guarantees in life. One of those guarantees is that your sporting career is going to end. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I suppose your your career ending is part of a a, a broader guarantee in life, which is change, and that's obviously an, an enormous change for an athlete. But there will be changes that have happened before then. In your case, it was dreaming of playing football and being pushed into rugby. That was a big sliding doors moment for you, and you took that change that change in in the best possible way by making a career out of it and then coming out is another change and there'll be more changes in, in life after that, whether that's kids, whether that's employment, unemployment, loss. The interesting thing around athletic identity, I don't know whether you've found this, is there's a lot of very popular theories, if bluntly used, can lead people down potentially some quite unhelpful paths. So if you think about the 10,000 hours, the notion of the 10,000 hours, putting all of these hours into becoming very skilled at something. And the more hours you put in, the better you are. The term marginal gains, you know, not leaving any stone unturned to get those little gains in performance. It feels like it can lead down uh, athletes or any performers down a path where you're just obsessing over that one thing you want to be great at. But, and yet there are some fantastic examples out there of the most elite athletes in the world, like your Jamie Roberts, who you played for Wales many, many times, British Lions, and managed to become a doctor, trained to become a, a medical professional at the same time. Or Marco Materazzi, who won the World Cup with, with Italy, also did a, an MBA in management, I believe. So there's some pretty good examples out there. You don't actually have to focus every single sinew, blood, sweat and tear on that that performance area there's there is enough room in your life for these these other pursuits absolutely and i think it's that, that's one thing that we try and do we try and highlight those positive messages the positive case studies because you've named a couple there uh, jamie roberts is phenomenal what he achieved you know, not only doing a degree and a master's and a phd but actually in medicine as well alongside as you say winning all those caps for his country and for the british Irish alliance but i always point to people other athletes who choose a sport vincent company captain in man city and doing what he's done on the field he did his mba at manchester university whilst doing those things as well all oh, right i didn't know that yeah beth tweddle um one of um, our trustees that switched to play she was at her best in gymnastics she's won olympic bronze medal and three times world champion but she was at her best performance wise when she was doing something other than just gymnastics and she set up total gymnastics business and and she, she coaches kids she was coaching kids uh, you know thousands of kids around the uk while still competing at that you know international and global level and that was what brought the best out of her because she had the ability to just have more perspective and switch off from her sport. So I think there are more stories like that out there. And I suppose one of our jobs is to try and highlight those so that people can see you don't have to be, you don't have to just focus on your sport. Well, the example that I like to use, there's two examples. There's one is the All Blacks, where when, you know, arguably the best team in the world for, for centuries, not centuries, for, de for decades, but they couldn't win, they couldn't win a World Cup yeah. final. And there was a study done on them. The time when they won, the difference between the two squads when they won and when they didn't win, was only two people, when they didn't win, only two people outside of the squad of 30 did something other than trying their best to be the best all-black they could be, the best rugby player they could be. And when they did win it for the first time, there's only two people that weren't doing something else outside of sport. They're a big believer in the better people make better all-blacks. And then when they, when they managed to back it up and win it back-to-back, -back, every single player of that squad would do, was doing something else other than where the than playing rugby and being the best athlete they could be. And I think that's huge. And the same for the, the German football team. 
the German football team, if you look at when they were world champions as well, we're talking about two teams who have dominated the, the, their sport, their respective sports. When they won the World Cup, you know, most of their squad was studying and in between matches and group games. There was no boredom in between the tournament. There's that, that book, Das We Boot, where you talk about their approach to developing the person, developing the mind, and then the sport will follow, uh, which, is a very, which is very different then, but I think it's becoming more and more apparent and more um, obvious into, in the modern-day sport today, I think. Those, I love the, the All Blacks example there. I didn't know that. That's a really, really, yeah. really interesting example. Also, my um, my heritage is half Scottish, half Kiwi, and I wrote Christian Cullen a fan fan letter in 1997. So anything anything All Blacks trivia, I'll be noting down. So thanks for that. I wonder, just super interested to know when. Okay, so when you're working with with athletes on this, let's say let's take a hypothetical athlete that maybe is quite resistant to the idea of having to develop another side of themselves. Does the, the case study by highlighting other athletes that maybe they might look up, up to in their sport or in other sports, do you find that that's a very powerful agent for change? Maybe not to maybe convince them straight away, but maybe just to start questioning the beliefs that they might have. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, if you think about it as an athlete, what do you want to, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? You want, you want to be the best athlete you can possibly be. You don't want to be focusing on what's coming next uh, when you're no longer an athlete because that's not going to, in, in your own mind, you don't think that's going to make you a better athlete. So the education piece around how do you become the best version of yourself, the best athlete, what do you put, what can you put in place? And seeing those, your idols and your heroes and the people you aspire to be as good as or better than and understanding their journey, understanding their challenges they had and how they overcome them, that helps inspire and also helps shape careers of the next generation coming through. So if you're hearing, Stories of Jamie Roberts has done this, and uh, and Beth Twaddle has done this, and yes, and Harris, and all those, all these other people that we've, we've mentioned who have gone on to do and achieve amazing things whilst doing other other things as well. That sort of chips away at the the excuse because you can always find an excuse. I'm not going to do that. Like I said before about I wasn't doing any fitness because I wanted to get my dissertation finished. Now I know with my mentality that is an excuse, but what I've done is I've prioritised my dissertation. The fact that I'm saying I can't do any fitness because I'm doing a dissertation is an excuse, and that would be unacceptable in the, the accountable world of elite sport. I can get away with it now because I haven't got a coach or teammates to hold me to account, and I can sort of trick myself that, you know what, I'm going to focus, I'm just prioritizing my dissertation, and when that's done, then I'm going to prioritize my fitness and everything else. And that's sort of drilled into you in, in elite sport, regardless of the sport. So if you can have that focus and understand that the stepping stones to be the best, include a bit of study a bit of something else a bit of this a bit of that a bit of downtime a bit of all those things then you'll prioritize those that are going to make you the best athlete you can be so i don't know if that's that answer your question i feel like i'm sort of talking around around yeah, it ab- absolutely i mean it, it is okay for us to mention these case studies and let's say the research that supports having a dis- distributed identity but then there also has to be an acceptance of the environments with which any elite performer, whether it's sport, whether it's business, whether it's the military or medicine, if you're trying to develop other sides of yourself outside of your primary performance area, particularly when you're being paid for that primary performance area, you also have to recognize the constraints of that environment. So it might not be, let's say, the right thing to go to a, an elite footballer who left, left school at 16 and to look at Jamie Roberts and go, right, we're going to, we're going to get you to study medicine. 
in your free time. It's what, what I suppose, what is the appropriate other endeavor that you can point them towards or they can point themselves towards that they're interested in, but also kind of fits the, the round, let's say the, the, the round shape and the round hole in terms of fitting into the rest of their, their lifestyle and the demands of that environment. Yeah, absolutely. No, no two athletes are the same. I'm very fortunate to work with lots of different athletes from lots of different levels and age groups and different sports. And, and there's a common theme amongst all of them. And, you know, that there's, there's obviously the transferable skills, but how driven they are. But everyone's different. People aren't, some people aren't going to go and go to university. They're not academic. They're not that way inclined. Some are more vocational. They don't want to go necessarily all want to go and work in the city or work in London. They're, they're, quite, they're looking for more vocational opportunities. But I suppose the point is, is separating your sport you know you are not your job and just finding something else now that could be might just even be music or reading or cooking or gardening it's about finding that escapism uh, in any way that suits you and it has to it can't be forced um, i suppose that if, if anything needs to be forced you know the athlete should be forced to find something that they are passionate about outside of their sport and that's it and uh, encourage them to to develop something outside of their sport now that could be anything um, and but you know as i say Research was showing that the, you don't wait, you don't be a, become a high achiever by not being dedicated and committed. So if they've got a passion outside of sport, then they're going to be dedicated and committed to that as well. So yeah, yeah, you you are not your job. I think that's a really good good soundbite to take from from some of those reflections. And I'd love to dig a little bit deeper in a second into what you feel are some of the the key transferable skills that elite athletes are taking into other environments, but. Before we do that, I'd, I'd love to just bring the focus back on your own journey for a second. So you mentioned the book, From Boot Room to Boardroom. When reflecting on your life in elite sport and then taking some of those skills and experiences now into the boardroom, what, what do you feel has transferred well and what are the bits that you felt that might have transferred well, but in, in hindsight haven't really done so? Again, my pers- speaking personally, I'm, I'm very... I'm like a sponge. I, I like to learn and because I suppose you're, you're a product of the environment and so much as when you're in an elite environment, you always strive to be better. And, and, and my clubs that I played for, Leicester Tigers for however many years, 13 years or so, then Gloucester for a couple of years, they were very similar in so much as they're all driven. How can, I, how can I make you better at your job? Because if I make you better at your job, then that means the team's going to be better and I'll be better at my job as opposed to just being so focused on yourself. Mm. That, was, that was a huge thing that I took from one living with, with Jono, Martin Johnson. Then I was, I was sort of mentored, if you like, by Neil Back, again, another World Cup winner. So I've, I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by these elite individuals. Yeah, there's some, uh, some high, high, level, high level performers there. Yeah, phenomenal. And, and they're the older guys. They're the guys who are older than me. So my peer group would be the likes of Lewis Moody and Jordan Murphy. Again, they've got 70, 80 caps, played for their country, played for the, the Lions. Lewis has won a World Cup. He's captain England, played in two World Cup fights. And people who, the environment that I'm, that I'm in all the time, it's always high-achieving elite people who, who are driven to not only succeed, but help other people succeed as well. So that they're the things I sort of take, I've taken and I try and highlight to other athletes who are in the same, looking to be in the same environment that they can take when they transition out of, out of their sporting career. And I, I, I sort of stop saying retirement really for when I speak to athletes because that seems quite formal that it stops. And whilst the career stops, the person doesn't, the mind, you're still the same, you've still got the same mindset and you're just transitioning. And I suppose it's more the focus of you're transitioning to something rather than transitioning from something. You know, mm. that's, that's the, the, I suppose it's a mindset, mindset shift. 
So this word retire, you, you, that's a dirty word to you now, is it? It is. It is. We, we, I don't. I don't use retirement. I don't. I try not to use. Well, I don't. I don't use life after sport. Although my book's called Life After Sport from Boom to Boardroom, uh, we're 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 definitely focused on life outside of sport, not after. Because if you leave it till after, it's too late. So what could you be doing now outside of your sport to make you better at your sport? These are the swap. That's the very subtle word changes, um, but we found them to be really impactful when when you when delivered. I suppose in your your world here, you're looking at all the little things that are going to either reinforce your your mission to to get athletic performers or any performer excited about distributing their identity and if that means using the word transition instead of retirement or using the word to instead of from those are sometimes the little things that can make the difference it's about it's about getting buy-in you know if you if you wind so i've been retired now 12 years we were just rewind 12 years we wouldn't be having this conversation really on, on a podcast i don't think so there wasn't much talk about it it wasn't we didn't have as many high profile athletes come out and talk about the challenges that they've had now it's become more a conversation, more a topic that people are happy and comfortable to talk about. Uh, and I think that's only going to develop. I think we'll, if we fast forward another 12 years, we'll look back on, the, on this podcast and we'll, we'll be amazed that not everybody was talking about it at the time. How did, we, how did teams manage to cope without being so open and without having other things outside their sport? I'm confident that that will be the case uh, as we move forward. But I think it's just small steps. The, 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 world, the world has moved so much in the last two or three years so it can only get, but it's going in the right direction. So I think there's going to be a momentum shift. And I suppose that that getting buy-in, I think, is quite quite interesting. And I'm assuming that buy-in is not just with athletes, but also with clubs or organisations that are buying into the work that Switch to Play or, or the type of companies that Switch to Play do. And just with my marketing hat on for a second, I can imagine, you know, if you go to a, a sport organisation or a club and say, we want to help athletes and, and performers distrib- distribute their identity learn other skills and it comes from a let's say more of a kind of philanthropic element then you know they might be able to take it or leave it but if you're coming to them with a you know case study around the the all blacks and you know the german world cup team you're saying not only is this going to help your athletes when they transition out of sport it is going to make them better in the here and now and improve your club you're right, yeah. That, that, that's the real game changer. Professor David Lavelli, who's at Abate University, mm-hmm. written a lot of papers on on this particular topic. I think he's the first ever professor of duty of care or athlete welfare, I think. And he was involved in the, the government review that Tanny Gray-Thompson led on the, du- the duty of care review. Uh, and f- until that, that came out, until that, that those papers were made available, trying to go into a, a, any organisation, where if, let's use football as an example, and use the Premier League, and we, we know we're very fortunate to work with the Premier League and, and go and work with their, the academy players there and deliver them sessions. But if we were to go in there and talk about, you know, we were life after sport and we're talking about not achieving your goal or your career could be over, no coach is going to want you to have access to their players because they're judged on Saturday to Saturday. Mm. And if they lose, especially at that, at that level, if you lose five, six consecutive games, you may not get a chance to lose a seventh one because you might be out the door. So it's about trying to find uh, the, the, the tangible win-wins and, and that, that paper and that, that research that's now available that shows that you can actually gain performance advantages from having more perspective and having interest outside sport and highlighting the likes of the athletes, we met, the individual athletes we mentioned before, but equally the teams who have been world champions and the best in, in their field. 
and it's very difficult then for a coach or manager, a director of football, rugby, or, or anybody then to to say, well, do you know what, it's not it's not worth it because everyone's looking for and go back to you mentioned marginal gains. Now, if this is seen as a marginal gain, then so be it. If this if this is helping get an extra one percent, two percent, five percent out of a, an athlete by encouraging them to do things in their downtime, and as a coach, I'm not a coach. But if I was, I'd be trying to maximise those things to, to make sure that, that on the Saturday where I'm judged as a coach things go according to plan I mean that that completely makes sense not just from the athlete's perspective but from the club's perspective and and from a, as I said from a, a kind of a commercial perspective it, it, it's, it seems like a no-brainer to, to buy into that David uh, Lavallee paper I will in all of these podcasts I'm, I'm trying to leave as many resources and, and links in the description of the podcast for people to to go and have a look at these things. So I'll, I'll see if I can find it. And- yeah, I can send you those. I can, I've, I've written two, two dissertations now on uh, <laughs> athlete transition. So I have lots of those papers. So I can definitely forward those to you so you can share them. We'll take them. We'll take them. Good. So just to kind of get into the, the final stretch of, of the conversation, I would love to lean into, you're working, through Switch the Play, you're working with athletes, performers all the time on that transition to the next thing what are the the clutch maybe the, maybe this is 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 hard to answer and if so t- tell me if it isn't this simple but what are the what are the kind of clutch of of skills that you find crop up the most with elite athletes elite performers and working on how they can use those skills in their next next chapter of their their career yeah i think there's i think athletes get pigeonholed we work with the uh, members of the military as well and there's a real synergy with the mindset of people who work in elite, the elite forces and elite sport and elite in business. They have the same traits, if you like, and they've been developed over time. So leadership is one, and that's not necessarily people just, people will assume that because you're an elite athlete that you're a good leader. Not necessarily. Leadership can mean lots of things. It mm-hmm. means you're knowing when to lead and also when to follow. And I think mm-hmm. athletes are, are very good at understanding that, especially the, the team athletes. But you know, we work with individual athletes as well, like golfers and uh, and tennis players but working under pressure uh, is very you know, playing in front of thousands millions of people and making the right decision at the right time keeping a calm head when the pressure's on mm. that's that's taken for granted by athletes they don't necessarily realize that when the proverbial hits the fan and other people around them might be running around panicking shouting fire 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 uh, i can promise you that the person who sat calmly who has read the instructions when a fire's happening and it's got that high level of attention to detail, which is another one, will be the person who's trying to calm the situation down uh, and trying to get things done more efficiently because, you know, as an athlete, you, go, you get things happen so quickly and you're only sometimes going to get one chance in a race or in a match or to take advantage of that. So making, mm-hmm. making the correct decisions under pressure. But I suppose linked to that is also as well is making decisions. So decision-making, you know, good decision, bad decision, and no decision. The athletes certainly at the elite end make decisions and they make them good decisions even if they start off as being a bad one uh, and that, that's tied into resilience because you get knockbacks all the time be that through injury non-selection mm. um, losing in, in big major cup finals as, as I've experienced which is horrendous but equally I wouldn't change that now because that drives that drives the, the feeling for when you do win one of my big I suppose my life motto is sweet and sour uh, and, and what that means is <laughs> to, to fully appreciate the sweet you must have experienced the sour and, and I, I use my own example of I'm very fortunate to have played in 11, won 11 trophies for Leicester. But I've also lost in five finals. Now, those five finals are oh, wow. bitterly painful. 
and I remember them like they were yesterday. I don't necessarily remember the, all of the 11, 11 that we won, but I do remember the five that we lost. And it's that, that pain that drives me and my teammates on to go and win those. And those, the, the feeling of winning after you've lost in something is, makes it far better. And I give the example that would I love to be sat here now talking to you saying I'd win in six, I've got 16 trophies. I think I would. I'd be lying if I, if I said I wouldn't. However, I don't think the ones, the 11 that we won, would taste as good if I hadn't tasted that, the pain of defeat. So I think that's just in my, in my example. And if you look across all athletes, everyone gets injured, everyone gets dropped uh, or, or left out or overlooked at a key moment in time. And how do you bounce back? I, I don't know many other environments where you left out for a cup final and the first thing you do is you go up to the person who's got your shirt for that cup final and say, look, anything I can do to help you get ready for the game, let me know. That, that's just phenomenal. You know, that, that mindset of, okay, I'm not in, bitterly disappointed, uh, devastated even, but still, you know, the, I am not the game. The game is bigger than me. The team's bigger than me. How can I make the team win? Mm. Those, those, sort of, that, those sort of approaches to, to challenges and to teamwork and, you know, I've mentioned a number of transferable skills there. A lot of those things are taken for granted by athletes. They don't realise that's not normal in outside, outside of the sporting environment. So it's about understanding them, how can they emphasise and how can they harness those things that, are, that have been drilled into them for so many years? How can they take them to the next level in, an, in a different environment? So it's yeah. transferable and translatable as well into different environments. It's, it's almost lovely to hear in some respects that there are these people that have these character traits or these, these skills inside them that they don't even realise how valuable they are, which I think is, is a super optimistic outlook. There are another couple of things in there that I really love. The life motto, sweet and sour. Absolutely love it. I think there was a Tom Cruise movie where one of the lines was, the sweet ain't so sweet without the bitter. I'll have is to look really? that up afterwards. I think I'm a so. Tom, I'm a, is, it, is it guilty... Uh, a guilty pleasure of mine, Tom Cruise. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to look that up. I think it might have been Vanilla Sky. I'm going to, oh, I'm going to Google check that, yeah. fact check that afterwards. I might have to do a, an, an edit. <laughs> Get it wrong. Yeah. But um, the other thing is the, the, lead, the leadership aspect that you mentioned and, and that there were many different facets of, of leadership, which I think is super interesting. There's a couple of athletes that I've worked with in, in team sports that refer to themselves as leaders but are also naturally and will accept that they are naturally quite introverted and won't necessarily make the kind of rousing Paul Connell-esque speech but they they kind of see themselves as as leaders as standard bearers in the way that they hold themselves the way that they behave the way that they train and take nutrition rest seriously the way that they put an arm around others in, in those lower moments or hold their head up high and shake an opponent's hand after a tough loss so the, the leadership can can come through behaviors and standards as much as it is the kind of the rousing you know any given sunday speech absolutely yeah and if you look at any successful team a team full of of people who, who need to get their you know their voice heard is not going to work so it take it needs a balance of different types of leadership traits and again, again mentioning the knowing when to speak when not to speak when to lead when to follow when someone's got a better idea than yourself how do you get behind them and support them and empower them? That is leadership. You know, there, are, there are lots of different types of leadership. And that's what I, that's what I did my degree in, in uh, to start off with. Because I've, I've worked under and played for some great managers, some great coaches, some amazing captains. I've also had the odd terrible ones as well. Uh, and, and understanding the differences in that, I've been able to take the little bits and borrow the little bits of leadership stuff, which, I, which has really resonated with myself. 
uh, and then put that to practice outside of sport has been fascinating. You know, there's there's stick and carrot ways of of leadership and understanding the different situational types has been really an eye opener for me. Really coming from that elite world and and leadership big element of of this this wider I suppose topic of the podcast, which is the psychologically informed environment. Just just to finish, what does a psychologically informed environment mean to you, Leon? That's a, good, it's a, that's a good question and a tough question as well because I don't really. I, I would say my interpretation is, and it is, it's this is a pure coincidence, maybe, is something that's linked to our switch to play core values, and that is one of our core values is being person centered. Mm. So it's around around the individual and about how to help them thrive in a, in their environment. But that that's that would be my interpretation. I don't know if that's a correct one or not, but I think that's probably the most succinct one we've had so far. Oh really? Um, oh, right. per- person centered and and within that that person being able to thrive within that environment. I suppose from the from the as a result of of how you set up the the challenge and support in that environment. Yeah, that, yeah. As I say, that that's great that 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 resonates because for us, how we when we set up switch to play. We focused on our own internal, our core values and team code uh, to, to make sure we get the right people involved first. That's more important than any CV that comes through the door. It's about the person. Do they fit in the environment? Can they add value? Will they enjoy it? All those things. And, and again, I take that from, from my sporting environment because that was awesome. It never felt like work. So I don't want people to come and work at Switch to Play if it feels like work. I want them to enjoy it, thrive, raise the, raise the standards, hold us, hold me to account, equally hold themselves to account. I think that's all for me. That's what it, that's what it means to me, anyway. There you go. So, from an environment perspective, you want an environment that is is person centered and allows them to thrive. And then your personal motto, sweet and sour, is viewpoint that to lead a. I'd just be reading quite a lot on acceptance, commitment therapy. And I think that there's something that you said there that really chimes with that, which is we're we're not all trying to chase happiness because li- living life at ten out of ten happiness all the time is is almost unrealistic. But what we're looking for is a rich and full and meaningful life. And that might mean that you have to experience a whole kind of kaleidoscope of emotions. But when you experience those emotions, you experience them fully. So if you lose a final, you almost have to lean into that that loss, that grief process. But then when you win a final, you get that full power and energy of that emotion and, and as as you mentioned before. Yeah absolutely that that that's I suppose that's where I suppose that's where my personal motto comes from is that trying to turn again it's resilience, isn't it? It's about bouncing back, not holding on, not harboring those things. I think that's that's hugely important because if you're not trying if you're not trying, if you're not failing, then really you have to ask yourself how hard are you actually trying? You sat within your comfort zone. You know, I I've I've played I've played with many an athlete who I've looked at and thought they are amazing. They are better than me. They haven't gone on to achieve what they should achieve because they weren't prepared to push themselves to an area which you'd probably need to to get to that level, which is absolutely fine. Um, but then you can't look yourself in the mirror and say, come up with excuses and reasons why you haven't done it. So I think you have to fail. You have to push yourself outside your comfort zone. Yeah. But then yeah. accepting that, is it really a failure? Is it, you know, because if you're learning from it, is it a failure? I know I'm getting a bit deep on you now. That's fine. Absolutely fine. Now, in, in the spirit of pushing yourself, you've been up at 6am, you've done your bike rides, I'm sure you've fed the dog, the kids' breakfast has been made, you've done a podcast and you've got a webinar to do in, in half an hour. So thank you again for making this one of the chunks of time in your day that you've decided to invest in. It, it really is hugely appreciated. For people that want to follow yourself, 
switch the play, find out more about what you guys are doing, where can people follow you? Okay, so on social media, my, my handle is leonloyd13. So I haven't really moved away from what I uh, said about not being your job. I've still got my, my shirt number in my Twitter <laughs> handle. It's not the letter though. Yeah, yeah true, yeah. Uh, yeah, so leonloyd13 uh, or, or switch or the handle for switch to play is switch underscore the underscore play. But my, you can find all those on my Twitter handle there. Also on LinkedIn as well. Reach out any any of those um, platforms. It'd be good to chat. Brilliant. Well, again, thanks so much, Leon. Best of luck with the webinar, finishing off the the MBA and and everything with you guys that you guys are doing with with Switch the Play. Cheers. Thanks, Pete. Once again, if you are still listening, thank you so much for sharing another slice of pie. I hope you enjoyed Leon's insights. I decided not to do a half-time reflection this week, so what have we learned at full-time? For me, there were a couple of things. It's hopefully becoming clearer and clearer to sports clubs, organisations and governing bodies that duty of care of athletes is hugely important. And the work that Switch the Play does is enormously valuable in helping athletes build new skills and think about other areas of their life that they'd like to develop. This is the type of work that could make the difference between an athlete finishing their sport career and struggling or suffering, or having something in place to get excited about and lean into the next stage of their lives. However, the reality is this. Currently, the way a lot of professional and elite sport is designed from the top is high pressure, is focused largely on performance and could be quite short term in its view. Therefore, Switch the Play compiling case studies and working with researchers to prove the potential immediate benefits to performance, as Leon mentioned, is a game changer. It helps get the buy-in from an organisational perspective, which gives them access to do the great work that they do. Finally, on a personal level, I really buy into a lot of what Leon was saying there, the all-black notion of better people make better performers, and you are not your job. Developing more skills in your armoury and more sides to this concept of me, helping me balance my identity across a number of different sources and ensure that it's not just tied up in my job. I read a post from someone quite high up in LinkedIn last year that said, as parents or teachers, we often ask kids, what do they want to be when they grow up? And the expected answer is normally a job a fireman, an astronaut, or if you ask any primary school teacher nowadays, it's a YouTuber or a professional gamer. Even these little environmental cues may nudge us from a young age to tie up our identity and self-worth with our jobs. But as Leon argues, and for me very persuasively, we are much more than that. So thanks again for listening. Have a great week and catch you for the next episode next Monday. Thank you.